0: You have been talking to Father.
1: Well, yes, dear, in a way I have. You see, your father...
0: Father would like me to be composed and to join in the conversation. Yes. I can't, Aunt Lavinia.
1: Oh, dear, perhaps you don't try sufficiently.
0: Oh, I do, I do, I would do anything to please him. There's nothing that means more to me than that. I have sat here in my room and made notes of the things I should say and how I should say them, but when I am in company, it seems that no one could want to listen to me. Welcome to the Magic Lantern Podcast, an ongoing informal discussion of the films we love and the things we love about them. I am Erica Long
1: and I am Cole Rollane. Each episode of The Magic Lantern will be devoted to one film that we alternately select, and we will discuss why it is significant to us. Just a note, whether the film is a classic or a more contemporary title, this will be an in-depth discussion that will include explicit plot details and potential spoilers. We are at episode 117 today. We are back to Erica's choice. What do you have for us today?
0: I've chosen... The Heiress, from 1949, directed by William Wyler, with Olivia de Havilland, Montgomery Clift, Miriam Hopkins, and Ralph Richardson. The film was written by Ruth and Augustus Getz, who adapted it from their 1947 play of the same name. And that play was an adaptation of Henry James' novella, Washington Square, from 1880. Catherine Sloper is a young woman of few romantic prospects, but lots of money who is wooed by a handsome young man of no means. And her father tries to stop the attachment because he believes the man to be a fortune hunter. The play, The Heiress, was widely seen running on Broadway and on the London stage, Ralph Richardson had originated his role there. And the story goes that Olivia de Havilland approached director William Wyler about directing after seeing a production. William Wyler then recruited the Getz to adapt their own work, and to make some changes that we will get into. The film was nominated for many awards, including Best Picture, Best Supporting Actor for Ralph Richardson, Best Director, and it won for Best Actress for Olivia de Havilland, Best Art Direction and Set Direction, Best Costume Design for Edith Head, Best Original Score for Aaron Copland.
1: Before we get into the movie proper, is this our first William Wyler after doing this for over four years?
0: It is. Now, I have recommended one of his other
1: films. Is it more of a surprise to you in that case that we haven't gotten to Wyler yet, or that we're doing him before other directors that might be more personally significant to us?
0: Gosh, chicken or the egg Mm. every time you ask me that?
1: Well, he has made some bona fide classics. The Best Years of Our Lives is obviously way up there. Ben-Hur and Roman Holiday are big titles.
0: The film I recommended in another episode, The Letter is one of my favorites. Doddsworth mm-hmm. is another big favorite of mine.
1: Jezebel, Wuthering Heights. Those are all highly regarded films, but somehow he has always been one of those almost but not quite directors for me. I certainly can appreciate his skill and the technique, but we're often not on the same wavelength, I think. It's typically his... Footnotish or smaller films that I gravitate to, The Desperate Hours and The Collector, would be my two favorites from his catalog. Obviously, this just rocketed to the top of the list.
0: Because this was the first time you watched it, yeah. right? How did you avoid it for I so don't long? Know. I
1: have no idea. Maybe because you're more of a William Wyler fan than I am generally. Do you attribute any of that to his body of work during this period being a significant quantity and quality of? Women's pictures, quote unquote.
0: I don't think he ever really occurs to me, even though I like a number of his films. I just don't think about it very often. He was definitely well regarded during that period, especially for drawing great performances from actors. He also did a lot of adaptations like The Heiress. He did a lot of costume drama, too. I will say Wuthering Heights, one of my least favorite movies. But that really does go back to the source material.
1: Well, like you mentioned, it came from a play that was in turn inspired by that Henry James novella. Does that mean, going into this as an audience member, I should be expecting this to be a perfect storm of psychologically complex, talky, and stage-bound? Does that serve to limit the audience a little?
0: Maybe it does. Those of us who are into those kinds of things... Okay, hold on, though. I have to get in my favorite line from Wuthering Heights. I have to. I can't bypass this opportunity. You're more myself than I am. What (laughs) the hell does that mean?
1: You might understand it a little better. What might unlock that for you is if you look at De La Soul's adaptation of that material, me, myself, and I.
0: (laughs) I prefer that version.
1: Well, I guess it wasn't negatively affected when you look at how it was received. It was nearly universally acclaimed. Even Bosley Crowther loved it, which is not necessarily a ringing endorsement.
0: I know. Do we hold that against the film or do we let it pass?
1: But you're right. It had eight Oscar nominations. It won four. It was the eighth highest grossing film of 1949. I think modern audiences might struggle with it a little bit, but when it comes down to it, no more or less than they struggle with any film from 1949, except for maybe The Adventures of Ichabod and Mr. Toad. If you don't love that, then you're dead inside
0: we got to watch that soon, by the way.
1: If there is a barrier, though, I think it's a real shame because the issues addressed in the text, they certainly feel timeless to me. And you certainly can't argue against the pedigree of the film. This thing has prestige picture written all over it, adapted from a classic literary work and a successful play. William Wyler at the helm, top line stars, excellent costume design by Edith Head, and no less than Aaron Copland contributing the music. That's a knockout lineup. And that thing that you said about costume drama, it also made me think of something. As a genre, it can be occasionally a little distracting for me. I'm with you. But that's by design. The way they're built, it often makes me conscious of their own artifice. Some people can sink right into that. They want to be enveloped in these sumptuous fabrics and these furnishings. And I feel like, for me, it's similar to musicals in that way, but without the diversion of some of the usual musical conventions, that entertainment. I don't yield as readily to it, that's all, I guess. I like all this attention to the more extravagant details, but with anything set 100 and now 150 years ago, I am always suspicious if everything isn't absolutely covered in filth. I think I may have been reading too many books about mid-19th century cholera outbreaks lately, I guess.
0: But you're saying that the costume aspect here was not distracting for you.
1: Nothing here was distracting for me. I fell into this right away.
0: Let's talk about that source material a little bit more. I don't know about you, but I would have loved to have seen the play version with Basil Rathbone and Wendy Hiller.
1: Wendy Hiller especially. Basil Rathbone can do imperious for sure, but I'm not sure that he has exactly the same qualities I would be looking for... That I find in Ralph Richardson.
0: I think Ralph Richardson made an indelible impression on that character. I think he went with his usual magical way of bringing a character to life. I can kind of take or leave Basil Rathbone, but yes, Wendy Hiller is what would sell it for me. And then the novella itself, I haven't read it. Have you?
1: No, unfortunately, I have not.
0: It's quite different. It's got an omniscient narrator who also comments on character and action, which sounds really interesting. But Henry James himself was not a fan of the work after he had written it. He called it poorish. He did say, though, that the only good thing in the story is the girl, meaning Catherine.
1: Well, speaking of Catherine, just generally, how would you define the space that she occupies? She's not an Emily Dickinson-esque flaker crackpot. The film, it never quite gives her enough credit to be considered ahead of her time. Is it just garden variety spinster, upper class version?
0: I think she's really interesting in that respect. As you mentioned, she's not necessarily a free thinker, a forward mover. She's very painfully shy. I think it's the pathology almost even more so of her father that shapes her and makes her such an interesting character. What she is fighting against that she doesn't quite understand. And it's really that process to become clear-eyed, which is not necessarily great, and certainly doesn't make for a happy ending.
1: Well, I'm glad that you see all of those things in it, because that's what I see also, and Henry James is typically more complex with his characterization than those choices I initially gave, but does the film shorthand that a little bit?
0: What I was struggling with in the beginning was, who is... Catherine? And is she worthy either of this incredible amount of disdain directed to her by her father? Is she worthy of us rooting for her as this heroine of a love story? What I don't think comes across is that she's supposed to be dull and plain physically, because Olivia de Havilland was a beautiful, beautiful woman. I think that she can play that extreme shyness that comes out physically. And she can play that awkwardness and discomfort. And I again think all of that seems to reveal more about Dr. Sloper and his weird, misplaced obsession with his dead wife. The fact that he lost his wife, it's made clear in the novella that it was through Catherine's birth that she died. He, in return, got a disappointing daughter out of the deal, at least in his mind. So how about we get to know these characters? let's get into the film. We've got this opening credit sequence that plays over a 19th century sampler that to me stamps this as we're in the realm of women. And we're told that the story takes place 100 years ago. Now, I want to stay right away, I don't know if this was the case for you, but I really struggle with my notes because I want to just repeat the script, which is perfect and only becomes more so. We're inside the Sloper household, and this is where the bulk of our action is going to take place. We get introduced to Catherine. We see her first in the mirror as she comes downstairs for the arrival of her new dress. We meet Dr. Sloper, who is already disappointed in her, looking at this latest embroidery, wondering if this is going to be the rest of her life. And next we've got Aunt Lavinia played by Miriam Hopkins here. She's going to stay for the winter and ostensibly help Catherine try to get her to be more social.
1: Now we're both big Miriam Hopkins fans for sure. Trouble Definitely. in Paradise, Design for Living, Dr Jekyll and Mr Hyde, The Smiling Lieutenant.
0: Which we got to see this year or last year now?
1: I want to say just to the end of last year, but on Gosh, the big screen time flies. Yes. Which was great. We're really looking forward to the upcoming Criterion release of the story of Temple Drake. She's a pip, to put it bluntly.
0: She sure is.
1: But this is a little different than those roles, because I like her here a little older, as a mentor. A guiding light, I feel like, is a great role for her. It seems like such a natural fit. She has the benefit of her accumulated wisdom, but she's got that personality that can dispense that without it being didactic or intimidating.
0: I think this is great later period, Miriam Hopkins, living in the age that she is. It's wonderful to see. And her character is clearly a cheerful and social person, even though she's been in mourning dress for a very long time.
1: I'll talk a little bit more about the widow and widower thing later. But now that you mentioned it, that mourning dress thing, do you think that's a ploy one way or the other to put off potential suitors or kind of a gambit to let people know she's available?
0: Well, Victorian era, women were expected to wear mourning, possibly for the rest of their lives. It wasn't as common for them to get remarried. I think it seems pretty clear early on here that Dr. Sloper already imagines Catherine to be doomed in her romantic prospects, and Lavinia is still ready to believe she can be in this romantic story. And we're starting to get some hints here of who Catherine is. She's too sensitive to see the head of the fish be chopped off by the fishmonger, and she won't invite friends over. Instead, she's going to continue this embroidery. There seems to be this desire in her to focus on homemaking. And I think it's interesting to think about at that time period, it's pointed out that women of her class almost disdained that kind of work. So to me, it says she's trying to still make this home into something of a haven. And this is the place where she feels less shy, even though she's trying to apply herself to being interesting. The scene that we did at the top of the show, I definitely recommend, as I always do, watch that scene with the sound off. Watch what Olivia de Havilland is doing here. She's putting on this new dress to wear to her cousin's engagement, which... I would think at some level must feel kind of painful for her and she's chosen a red dress here and we get the next of our series of overt insults that also come with a bit of a compliment. It's that first hint of that specter of her dead mother and how incomparable she was. When she wore red, she dominated the color.
1: Yeah, it's kind of a harsh way for him to tell her that maybe she's not an autumn. Exactly. <laughs>
0: Sorry, I don't know why
1: that really got you. That's a good one.
0: It did. (laughs) Okay. Anyway. Okay, I'm gonna try control
1: myself. Yeah, get it together, (sighs) Long. Oh shoot. They head to this party, and when you have Olivia de Havilland. As the ugly duckling, that's kind of a high bar, like you said.
0: God, no kidding. What hope is there for the rest of us?
1: I take umbrage, though, at this suggestion that she has no poise. I see very little difference in her performance of these social niceties than that of the rest of her peers. I do admit I perceive a slight difference, but it's in her favor. I like her sense of humor, her occasional clumsiness, all of her idiosyncrasies. She is the one that I would gravitate to at that party. And my favorite thing, I think, about her is when you pull all of those traits together, they collectively point toward an intelligence. She stands that way in direct opposition to all of the other girls that are assembled in their superficiality and vacuousness. It's an intelligence that's never been encouraged or fostered, but they have never managed to kill it so far. It's under there, it's biding its time until the right person comes along to appreciate it and reflect it back to her. A person that's on her wavelength. They do make her look plain, I guess, as much as they can. This look, what would you call it? Sexy Ruth Buzzy?
0: (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, unplucked eyebrows is really the extent of what they can do.
1: Yeah, her wardrobe, however, is spectacular.
0: So in her place, do you think that there would be any real hope if she's constantly being told or others are being told about her that she's mediocre without poise, as you mentioned? Basically unmarriageable. And this is being reflected back to her. One of the suitors basically hides from her rather than continue to dance with her. So if that's what you're constantly being told about yourself, can you rise above it?
1: I think there is hope. There's always hope. And in this case, we know there's hope because Lavinia is there to help.
0: A positive force.
1: Right. Although she is in mourning rags the whole time. (laughs) She's so damn cute. It's like the specter of death is here to help you.
0: That's kind of true. Feel yeah. out your
1: match.com profile.
0: I also can't say enough about how much I love Ralph Richardson in this just odd bits of business and characterization. I can't imagine anyone else in this role now. I think he's stellar. I know he's in one of your other favorites, The Fallen Idol.
1: Yes, he is perfect in that movie, and somehow still completely unrecognizable when you compare that character to this one.
0: Absolutely. I think there was something magical about him, as people said. I can't really understand how he came to be and do what he does.
1: Well, at the other end of the spectrum of performance style, we have Montgomery Clift showing up now, and he is interested in Catherine very clearly, and this first night, His motivation, it seems pure. It's the way he regards her. It's all that eye contact.
0: I really did feel that there was something very genuine about Mm -hmm.
1: him. Absolutely. It's the kind of flattering attention and focus that would make quite the impression on a girl who had never experienced this before.
0: And I don't know about you, but Montgomery Clift is clearly a very physically beautiful man. But I don't also get that sense that I do from other really gorgeous men, that there's something deep within him that's nasty? I don't get that sense of cruelty.
1: Nasty like Janet Jackson?
0: (laughs) Nasty in a bad way. I don't get that from him. I never have.
1: So just so I understand, you are saying that you never found that quality of nastiness and cruelty within him.
0: Yes. I never detected a mean streak in him, which I guess makes me think that he's genuine.
1: Well, she certainly reacts to that this way. Because my favorite thing about her response is that she is never less than honest in return. She's overwhelmed by these attentions. This may be the first time that she's gone through this, but never does she dissemble nor lie.
0: I really enjoy the framing that's used throughout this film. That's Leo Tover, by the way, was the cinematographer. Morris is first introduced. We only see him from behind, partially with his back. And in the beginning, A lot of his scenes are completely in profile for him, whereas Catherine has the more open face. So I think this is suggesting to us maybe don't be too sure about his motivations. I just appreciate that he's gentle, but also teasing, and this seems to relax her in a way that we don't see otherwise.
1: This is that quality that I was talking about. Someone who understands her sense of humor and can play along on her level.
0: Now, this was just Montgomery Cliff's third film, by the way, and you mentioned different acting styles. The three leads definitely had some difficulties. They felt that Ralph Richardson was kind of dominating, trying to steal scenes, doing odd bits of business, even though William Wyler had directed Leo Tover to put him in the distance, to put him outside of the frame. And Montgomery Cliff, I think, really seemed to struggle against both Richardson and de Havilland. He felt like she was shutting him out of their scenes. He felt like that Richardson was never changing what he was doing from take to take, which made it harder for him to improvise or to try different things, which was really a stamp of Montgomery Clift.
1: When I look at Clift's style versus everyone else's, the first thing I think about is what must it have been like to be an audience member then? This is one case that I think... 1949 audiences might have actually been reacting similarly to audiences now. And whether or not you chalk it up to the method or his relative inexperience versus the rest of the cast, there is an otherness to what he is doing that sets him apart. And I want to clarify, not above, just apart, aside from everyone else. But it's interesting how it makes it work and then not work. I think it's ultimately all in his favor. It makes it so that He has an inherent outsider status that reflects hers. It makes it easier to believe him initially as a sincere suitor. His is the type of nonconformist personality that would seek out and value her more idiosyncratic characteristics. His less rigid, less formal style, it also makes it easier to view him as undisciplined when the story calls for it. He might not have been the best choice for period costume drama, I think. But the clash of styles overall, it works to preserve what I feel like is a necessary ambiguity for this one.
0: I think his modernity, his modern look gives a suggestion that he would be the one to pull Catherine forward, to give her an opportunity to be more of a free thinker. And I think it sets up an interesting generational conflict with Richardson being so careful and precise and holding so much back behind a mask. But definitely, Clift himself had concerns about taking the part. He thought that maybe he wouldn't fit in well to this costume period drama.
1: There are others that seem like they might have stepped into it more easily, definitely. For instance, I know of, but I haven't seen, I'm curious to see it, there's a TV version of this that was made in 1961, and that was with Julie Harris and Farley Granger, who seems perfect for this sort of costume drama. And that pairing, especially the two of them, seems like a great pairing for this story.
0: Julie Harris with anybody, I think, would be great. And another example of these beautiful women that we're supposed to be convinced are plain and dull, but who more than anything have the acting ability to pull that off. So that's yet another adaptation of the work. Why do you think that certain material is adapted over and over and over again? Is it because the story is bare bones enough that you can add or take away or shape it into something else? Is it that the source material itself is so strong? Is it that people are genuinely lazy and just go back to the same properties over and over?
1: I tend to lean toward the positive. I tend to think that a work is adapted multiple times because of the strength of the material, not just because it's a framework that's easy to knock around. It has to at least be interesting at its heart and provide something. Otherwise, you could just lean on stock archetypes and rehash the same seven stories that we've been telling for centuries. To be remade a number of times implies to me that either there is something forceful or valuable specific to that individual work, something that the adapter is trying to retain and pass along.
0: I'm still kind of preoccupied with Montgomery Clift. He's someone who's always fascinated me. I don't know if he's occupied as much brain space for you, but I think a lot of him pre and post accident. That car accident comes more than a decade after this film, but I think it's really fascinating how he was presented to us before and after. It's as if he couldn't quite exist in the world with the rest of us before the accident because he was so beautiful and then somehow afterwards he couldn't exist with the rest of us in the world because he wasn't beautiful enough anymore.
1: Kind of a Mark Hamill thing.
0: (laughs) That is kind of true, sort Mm, of, yeah. yeah. But he didn't get a whole second life as a voice actor. But anyway, it's now Morris's third visit and he's moving really quickly here. He's very forward.
1: Yes, he comes to visit and he brings along this composition to play that will set the tone for the rest of the film.
0: That piece is plaisir d'amour, by the way. How so?
1: The lyrics are a little on the nose here. The joys of love last but a short time. The pain lasts all your life. Great. And Copland's signature is evident throughout the film. You can really feel those Copland flourishes in a couple of places. But this is the piece of music that made my ears prick up. I did not know that Jean-Paul Ajit Martini was such a major influence on Elvis.
0: I know, and you were even sort of humming it to yourself, and that was the basis for I can't help falling in love with you. Adapted again and again.
1: Yeah, six degrees of Elvis here, a straight line from the heiress to blue Hawaii.
0: I like his physicality here with her as well. He's constantly pushing in, and she then has to back away or even bend away. And more than anything, he is just like at the party pushing her to be honest. But what does she feel at this point? Is she still wrestling with her feelings? This is very new. She is still not ready to declare herself in the way that Morris is. But he gets invited to dinner, and this is an opportunity for Dr. Sloper to probe him about his past. And Morris is very intelligent and is honest again. He has no skills, no training. What could his profession end up being?
1: I believe it's pronounced gigolo.
0: I think you're right.
1: Basically, a kept man of some sort.
0: And Morris is no fool. He can see through Dr. Sloper. He realizes Sloper does not like him. And I really like Kathy here. She is not ready to ask her father whether or not that's true. She's not ready to contradict him in any way.
1: It's taken a lot of training to get her to live that way. Her father is always trying to hold her to her mother's standard. Is there anything about that that you could call well-meaning in any way? Is short-sighted the most diplomatic thing we can say about that?
0: Short-sighted or just pure weird psychologically?
1: Because there's not overt malice in his manner most of the time, but that's how they get you. The emotional abuse is presented to you as for your own good, and you've never known anything else. It's her father's behaviors that are paving the way for her being led down the primrose path by Morris. She can now transfer her rationalization of her father's behavior to her lover's behavior, and the cycle will just continue indefinitely.
0: And in a moment, before she can even express her own inadequacies, which she's ready to do, Morris asks her to marry him.
1: The saddest part of this whole thing right here for me is that, obviously, neither one of these men merit her devotion but she is willing to accept Morris going through the motions, live with it the rest of her life, perhaps, because it is at least better than distance and disgust like she has experienced at the hands of her father.
0: I think the most important line in the script during this marriage proposal is that she says he makes her very happy. We don't see his face when he says, I'll cherish you forever.
1: That's an interesting point. Two things about that. We don't see his face, and immediately I have to think, It makes her happy, but what does she have to compare it to? Because I get the impression that she's extremely romantically inexperienced. How do you think that she developed her idea of what romance should be?
0: I think she and many women of her time would have ready access to romantic literature. There were the Bronte sisters, Jane Austen, poetry from William Blake, adventure stories like Alexander Dumas. And I can definitely imagine Aunt Lavinia as well, lapping that stuff up, even in her morning dress at the rectory. They would have these guides about how to act, what to expect, but certainly it's not coming from any source that verbally tells you what to do. And she doesn't have a mother around, and her father's not going to guide her in these ways. So it all seems pretty made up.
1: What's not made up, for her at least, in a situation like hers, you model those closest to you. I would imagine, and her father and her aunt have these idealized relationships with what are essentially ghosts. Their departed spouses have been idealized to the point that they are paragons. These are unreachable, unreasonable ideals for her to pursue. In her father's case, even though Coloween is over, there is a connection to the Babadook in that her mother died giving birth to her. And like you said, it just deepens the resentment and amplifies his disappointment. The universe took my perfect wife from me and replaced her with this potato.
0: Absolutely, and I think it's left him unable to love her.
1: Why do you think these characters never remarried? Was it social convention?
0: At least for Dr. Sloper, no one could ever possibly come close, so let's just live with this ghost forever.
1: I know that across cultures, universally, men had a better chance of remarriage than women. Patrilineal fortunes were not to be diverted. And often, widows were excluded from inheriting any of their husband's estate. You notice that even though both of them have lost their spouses in this film, Lavinia has moved in with her brother, not the other way around. So Catherine has spent years absorbing these impractical ideas about what love, and especially what your spouse, should be. And I don't imagine that she's had a ton of social interaction to offset those ideas. The literature thing you make a good point about that but it seems to me like she's more interested in embroidery than reading she's never referred to as being very bookish
0: so then does she have any innate capability to recognize love when it comes to her and then give it back
1: i think she definitely does i think she's desperate to do so and i think there are instances in the scripts that let us know she's more savvy to what's happening here than people might give her credit for but we'll get to that
0: okay I think you still have more hope in this than I do. I think everyone here is doomed. I think it's at this point as well that you asked me, this all can't possibly end well, right?
1: It certainly doesn't seem like it could. Things are moving so fast between them. We go from a kiss to a lightning quick proposal in almost no time at all. We have all of her father's suspicions about Morris, and I'm still not sure at that point if they're correct or not. If he's on to something or if he's just misreading this poor young man, which leads me to ask you, is there any difference, do you think, between what Clift is giving us and how we interpret that?
0: Maybe I'm giving him too much of the benefit of the doubt. Now, a big change that was made in this story was to make Morris less of a villain. It's made clear in the rest of the source material that he is indeed a fortune hunter. I think it's more interesting here that we don't quite know and that there's nothing, again, overtly nasty about him. So we're thinking, even if he were a mercenary, is that necessarily a bad thing here?
1: Because he doesn't seem to be taking pity on her. He seems to be sincere. So maybe the question is, how much influence does Catherine or Olivia de Havilland's performance have on how we view his motivations? Do we want her to be right about him because of our affinity for her? Or has she convinced us because we don't want to be as callous and unfeeling as her father? It could be all sorts of things. She makes quite the emotional case, even though maybe there's not as much hard evidence to back it up.
0: And he's done everything right so far. All of this is about drawing her out. What are your thoughts? How do you feel? What do you want? Not reflect all of my glory back to me. Who are you as a person? and not giving her a chance to give in to these baser instincts this self-pity or the sense of inadequacy that her father is constantly underscoring to her. And she's so excited here, she jumps the gun. Before Morris can formally have the opportunity to come over and ask for her hand, she tells her father what's in the works. I'm engaged to be married. It's awesome that she stands up for herself, even as he's chastising her for moving so quickly, for doing that part first. She's also speaking what she believes, that he wants me. But clearly Dr. Sloper is not going to say yes or even imply that he will say yes or consider it. And now we're coming to a scene that I find so fascinating for what goes on. He has invited Morris's sister to come over to ask what sort of man Morris is. And here's another instance of a person being very honest but unwilling to complain or say bad things about the person they care about. She doesn't throw him under the bus. She says, you want me to complain about him, but I have no complaints.
1: There are a whole lot of great turns of phrase in this screenplay and I particularly like the description of how Morris used his inheritance here. He enlarged his capacity.
0: I would like to see a little bit more about that. (laughs) I know, it's wonderful. As I mentioned, I just constantly was writing down bits of dialogue. And she's also very clear-eyed about Dr. Sloper. She knows that he expects too much of people and will therefore always be disappointed. So then the thing that he does next is to bring Kathy into the room. As if to imply, yeah, here's the big disappointment. And also that she's unlovable constantly proving his certainty of what she is. And I think it's even more brilliant here that Kathy really can't stand up to that scrutiny. She has too many other things. She's trying to be too perfect, so she can't maintain this conversation. So then, rather than this aspect of Kathy's personality being a credit to Morris, that he's becoming more mature in his feelings, it's instead making her an object of pity. And the final blow here, he manages to shame the sister at the same time. I just felt kind of dirty after this scene for everyone. Ashamed on all accounts. So then, it's clearly a no for Dr. Sloper, and he and his two sisters are talking about this situation. To him, Kathy is a willing victim. To the sisters, they make a really good point. This man may take very good care of Kathy and her money and may also make her very happy. So what do we think about this idea? Is that a devil's bargain?
1: To a degree, it is, if that's the choice. Her father is clearly worried about her for some reason, in some way. But I have the benefit of thinking that these social customs and conventions are ridiculous. These characters are bound by them, it seems... But I don't see the choice that she is presented with as a binary choice, ultimately. I think that's a false dichotomy. For example, 19th century coal shows up and all bets are off. There is the potential to introduce an iconoclast into the mix, not just a gold digger.
0: Yes, that's not what we really have here, though. I think we are presented with a finite number of opportunities. And I don't know that Dr. Sloper is worried about her. I'm not sure I would use the word worry. I think he's tired of having to even think about her or her future.
1: Well, then this emotional abuse that her father meets out, do you get the feeling that he holds the whole world in contempt? Obviously, he has a particular resentful disdain for his daughter. But based on this scene and everything else we've seen, do you get the impression that he's like this with everyone to some degree or another?
0: I think so. He just shamed a perfect stranger. You would never see him with anyone else. I think he's the iconoclast.
1: Well, the crux of the matter, then, for me, it's a question that Catherine eventually asks herself. What is it, then, that he is trying to protect? He doesn't care for her, like you're saying. He's not worried about her. He has no interest in her emotional well-being on any sort of empathic level. So does he just want to protect his money? Does he just want to be right? What is it?
0: I think more of the latter. I think he wants to extract his pound of flesh an ounce at a time until nothing is left and she understands what she has done to him by killing his wife.
1: That's interesting because I think she's actually well aware of that and a number of other things. Even though she's inexperienced, she's no fool. And I think that's something that's glossed over here a little bit. I think deep down, she knows everything that is going on with her father and with Morris. And she's decided, in the case of Morris anyway, that that's fine with her. She does make this more explicit later.
0: I just like that she gets tougher as the story goes, not less so.
1: As I was considering what her father's general objections to this could be, I'm trying to just work through what the problem is. You were talking about how the sisters were saying she could be happy anyway he could love her and the money. When it comes down to it, are these arbitrary standards of beauty and these instances of attraction any more or less absurd than money as a motivation?
0: Yeah, I don't think so. And there's also a differing view of marriage. I certainly wouldn't accept that now. Dr. Sloper married for love and look what happened. So there's got to be some sense of security involved. It is a possibility That Morris could go through all of the money that she has at her disposal. They would be left with nothing. Father would disinherit her so she's got no opportunity to make any more. They could be penniless, but really Dr. Sloper wouldn't care at that point. He would be long gone. But no one here seems to be looking for a very fulfilling relationship, but I think Kathy is. And to have never felt happiness in that certain way and then to have it, I think, would be very fulfilling.
1: Before we get away from this part of the conversation, I've seen some analysis of this that suggests some sort of sexual undertone between father and daughter. I don't see it. Do you?
0: Absolutely not. I think he's still obsessed with his dead wife. I don't see any kind of incestuous concept or trying to make her into that image Mm -hmm. so that he can then put that love onto her. I think that that path has long been closed off.
1: Yeah, there's nothing in their demeanor that suggests anything but pity, revulsion, and disappointment on his side, and then misplaced filial devotion on her side. Well, we're heading toward our first big confrontation over all of this between our two male leads here. The first showdown between Clift and Richardson is dynamite. I think this is the scene that I'm most fascinated with. It's especially evident here, but any anytime that the two of them are facing off, it's like watching a duel between a flawless technician and an insolent but passionate upstart. Richardson barely has to move to have him back on his heels. And I think that his strategy in taking Catherine away for a while is a masterstroke of paternal cunning. By testing her, he is testing him.
0: And that moment in the beginning when Dr. Sloper is trying to invite him to sit down or command him to sit down, doing so puts him out of frame, which is really cool. And when everyone agrees... They'll go to Europe for a bit, Dr. Sloper thinking everyone will cool off during that period. Morris goes to see them off at the boat, and Richardson turns away as Morris gives her a present. I can't think of another contemporary of this film where so much interesting work is done with the staging, so many backs to the audience. We don't see that commonly for a long time in cinema. So they're in Europe and Dr. Sloper has taken Catherine to this place where he and her mother went, which is again, super weird to me. There's an awesome bit of business here with his cup and spoon as he declares, there's no reason to prolong this trip. She still wants to be with Morris. So in this moment where we are not in the Sloper household, do you think in general that the film feels too set bound? And is that a bad or a good thing? And by the way, that's Harry Horner designing the sets, also winning the Academy Award.
1: It doesn't feel too bound to that single set of their house for me. We go to a party. We see them off at the docks for their trip. We see them at this cafe in Paris. We sit in Washington Square. We may not linger at any of those particular locations for a long time, but it provides enough variety, I feel like at least, so that it never feels static that way.
0: I really don't care one way or the other because I think the set itself is fascinating. There's so much work done with mirrors and with doors that close at specific points, sliding, moving us in and out of action. So I'm okay if we hang out mostly in this set.
1: So you're saying it's basically noises off? Is that what you're saying?
0: (laughs) It is. And still really fun.
1: Well, the thing I like about this trip, while they are gone... Morris reveals little bits of his character. It's almost imperceptible, but Clift gives us just enough to see this mask slipping. It's in the way that he appreciates the finer things when he's in their house visiting Lavinia. He makes himself just a little too comfortable, and you can just feel that rather than see it almost. The dead giveaway for me, though, is when he says that he cannot earn these things the way the doctor has. What's keeping him from it? Nothing but his own idleness, basically.
0: Morris and Lavinia have been conspiring during this time, coming up with an elopement plan. And finally, it's time for Dr. Sloper and Catherine to come back. And do we hear those bells of doom in the background when Dr. Sloper has caught a chill?
1: It wasn't color, so he couldn't cough blood into his handkerchief.
0: Right, but pretty close. And this is really the worst that he's been to Catherine so far disparaging her personality even though he claims he's tried to not be unkind but he makes it clear she's got nothing to offer to anyone i think the biggest cut is you embroider neatly
1: well these plans for elopement they set quite the fire in catherine this is a very romantic idea for her
0: she's giddy
1: and she doesn't want to wait for a number of reasons Mainly because of what her father has just said to her, but also because of how excited she is about the idea. So she wants to do it now, which has set Morris's carefully orchestrated scheme right on its head. And when she's trying to explain to him how much she wants this and how much she needs this immediately, she tells him, my father doesn't like me. It's put very plainly, and in that way that you know from Catherine, she wouldn't say it if it weren't true How do you feel about her father's assessment of her?
0: I think he will never be able to be clear-eyed about Catherine. I think that yes, possibly some of that is a bit true, because he has harvested that in her, forcing her to show her awkwardness and her shyness, not encouraging her in other ways, giving her freedom in the wrong way with these invisible barriers, these invisible obstacles, so he can never see her faults and her abilities. And so then escaping for her would be the only way to become herself.
1: I think that's exactly right. In terms of what will make her valuable to the strata of Victorian-era society that she belongs to, he is at least partially correct, whether that's because of her innate characteristics or what he has bred in her. She is not made for that but no one is giving her the opportunity to show what she is made for she feels like this is her chance to do that that's why this is so important is her steadfastness in the face of all this what wins us over because we're sympathizing with her throughout so what prompts that affinity within us
0: it is for me her saying my father doesn't like me that is the truest thing that could be said here and that she is totally ready to not depend on him for anything and making that clear to Morris as well. She's saying it to herself, almost as a mantra at this point. She seems entirely okay for the first time, and that she's changing the plan. She's trying to take the reins here.
1: You said two things that I want to try to reconcile. In all other respects, her father is absolutely completely off base, and his mind is clouded by decades of unspoken resentment, and when he finally gives voice to her, I wonder about the veracity of what you just said about her being okay, because now her heart has begun this process of being hardened beyond all repair, which doesn't bode well at all, considering the cracks that we are also starting to see in Morris's veneer.
0: Because he's digesting the information that we can't rely on him, we're not going to get this extra money. 10000 versus 30000 And we see his face. We are clearly on his face and he seems to be rethinking. I think she is okay because I think that there's a staunchness that's now developing that she didn't know was there. And if allowed to her own bent, if things had gone well, that staunchness would serve her well in the future to get through other obstacles. Because she is pouring out her love here. She is directing it to him when she talks about this night at the inn where they would spend their honeymoon, she looks so exultant at that point. So she's ready for nothing but good things to come.
1: But guess what? They're not going to.
0: Oh, spoiler alert.
1: Yeah. Lavinia, she finally lays it on the line about Morris's treasure hunting. And I mentioned earlier that I really like this role of mentor for Miriam Hopkins, but how much better is this character than the doctor? because everything either one of them does for Catherine is motivated by pity, it seems like. One is just more sweetly delivered than the other. At least she has Catherine's best interest at heart, I guess, even if she didn't understand her any better than her father did.
0: She's not wrong when she explains that Morris may not understand, in the way that we would, that $10,000 is not such a great deal when one has expected 30000 is she advocating for maybe you should have waited to give that piece of information? Is it because she has gotten to know Morris during this six months and she's seen that? So she thinks, well, for 30000 he would be a fantastic husband. And we know what we're getting. But for 10000 he may not
1: show up. And here we have the film's most crisp moment of clarity, I think. This is the thing that I mentioned earlier, how Catherine has the clearest understanding of her own situation. Morris will love me for all those who didn't.
0: is that a little too on the nose? Do I you think? don't
1: think so. I think right here is necessary. I think it really drives it home. It's a, an absolute crescendo to this, and then that is just the exclamation point on it.
0: Is it also something that at least for me it catapults this into a timeless story. I could hear this fifty, seventy years ago, seventy years from now,
1: yeah, I think so. She is deeply, painfully aware of everything that has passed her by, and it makes for a desperation here, which only compounds his cruelty in not coming back. At this point, she feels that Morris was her best, maybe only chance. Of course she would feel that way. I am only saying that that's possibly incorrect based on my experience, that whole Pope of Greenwich Village thing. Nothing ever hurts like you think it will. Her relative lack of experience doesn't offer her the benefit of that perspective, though.
0: Right, and you're not in her position to be a spinster for the rest of her life at that period of time.
1: But it's over from this point. Her heart has now completely hardened against everything and everyone.
0: A moment here about the great scene in the morning when she knows he's not coming. She's got to drag all of her belongings back upstairs. That scene, that was all about William Wyler. He had made her do that take over and over and over again. And he said, it looks too easy. And he realized that was because her suitcase was empty. So he had it filled up with books so you could actually see the weariness on her face as I think this was the 37th take or something like that. To capture that dejection as she drags her life back up the stairs, back up to her room.
1: Well, you can imagine domestic life is basically discord from here on. She makes her father alter his will. She forces his hand on that. He has clearly underestimated her. She even refuses to go to his deathbed when he calls. And then Dr. Sloper is gone. And time passes. And we feel that Catherine has grown into herself in these years since her father's death. But she seems to still clearly be missing something.
0: I love that de Havilland as the character has deepened her voice as the film has gone along. And she does seem content at this point. She has either resolved or actually likes the square, as she says. So she stayed in this house. And Aunt Lavinia is still with her, and the aunt has seen Morris Townsend. She's still trying to excuse him and the jilting. And she points out, Neither of them has married during this time that they've been apart.
1: But Catherine denies him, and she is right to do so, I feel like. Everyone else feels so weak. Lavinia feels weak. Morris feels weak. In relation to all of them, we see that all this time that Catherine has been cultivating strength. His charm, too, is hollow at this point. That did not age that well. And the blocking here is interesting, too. That thing you were saying earlier, she is no longer leaning back to make room for him the way that she once did. Earlier she all but fell over having to accommodate how much he was leaning into her personal space. Not anymore. Basically what I take away from this is that the consistency of her character is remarkable and he is a fool.
0: You said strength. Do you think it's also coldness? And if it is coldness, is that a bad thing?
1: I think that's the way that she's had to do it In her particular case, I think there is coldness that is attached to it. And it makes me feel sad for her because I think she had so much potential for love and joy prior to this happening. But to survive that, I feel like, yes, that is exactly what she has had to do.
0: And not just to receive love, but to give it. That's the part that I feel the saddest about, that she can't express what at least at one point was inside of her.
1: And of all the dialogue in the script, we have the coup de grace here. Yes, I can be very cruel. I have been taught by masters.
0: And that was the one addition for the film only, not in the play, not in the novella.
1: You mentioned her voice. I feel like she has so fundamentally transformed that she appears to just be a different woman to me. And I especially feel it when she's in close proximity to Montgomery Clift. He might have some indicators of age in his makeup or his wardrobe, but she looks like an evolution has taken place. And it's not that she's heavily made up. It is all in her eyes. She is no longer who she once was.
0: And I think it's important that de Havilland was in her 30s when she did this. I don't think it would have read the same when she was in her
1: 20s. Now, we are at the bitter, bitter end here. And in this sequence, she says that this is the last embroidery she shall ever do. Did you read that at all as she's planning suicide? Because it crossed my mind briefly. Is she saying that? Is she saying something else?:
0: Here's how I take it. So all the way back at the beginning, we have our credit sequence over that sampler, which makes me think, as I said, we're in the women's realm. Even though this type of embroidery was something that spinsters might teach to young girls, it still is relevant to your home life and homemaking. To me, it says: I am no longer focused on making this home for my family. I will no longer contribute to this craft that is about this home that doesn't exist. That's how I take it. I didn't think at all that she was going to commit suicide.
1: Well, then acknowledging that, is it a triumph or is it a defeat? I'm no longer adhering to this. I'm no longer bound by these conventions and these rules. I will not participate.
0: I'm thinking of it in a bit of a different way than when I first saw it, and I've read some interesting things that shed some different light, gave me some different options here. Because the bitterness is that she tricks him into thinking that she is going to go away, leaves him pounding at her door as she just turns off the light, closes the curtains, and goes. So maybe she is accepting, this is my home, I am the mistress of my home on my own terms. She's learned to be clear-sighted, good or bad. And maybe also she has brought an end to her own poisoned line.
1: A love story for the ages. (laughs) Yeah, this is as anti-romance a film as I've ever seen for something that was sold as a love story. If you watch the trailer in 1949, you think you're in for thrilling embraces, passionate kisses in the rain, and being swept away by this love that cannot be denied.
0: So you can understand why fans wrote in demanding that they should have had a happy ending.
1: Think again, sucker. It is a cruel trick that they're playing on us with that trailer as the bait, basically. Come for the love story. Stay to get your guts ripped out by a money-grubbing fortune hunter, as even your own father tells you how obtuse and unlovable you are. (laughs) Aside from de Havilland's performance, I think the real genius of this film lies in how it lures us in. It keeps us off balance, and then it demolishes every romantic fantasy that Hollywood has ever fed us about ducklings, swans, and how no one notices how hot the plain girl is until she takes her glasses off. And then, before we can catch our breath, it grinds the pointed heel of revenge deep into all of that. Do you feel like at least some of the appeal of this is rooted in that revenge for the passed over and the underestimated? Because no one comes out on top. Everyone is equally miserable. There are no winners here.
0: When I first saw it years ago, I didn't know how it was going to end. I suspected. But I didn't stay for the revenge. I stayed for how beautifully it unfolds, how cruelly it unfolds, and how everyone is at the top of their game here. So I've got one last question for you. And you can reflect on this in previous periods or in the modern era. Do you think it's possible to love and also seek to gain something?
1: I think so probably because I'm one of those people that feels like there's no such thing as absolute altruism. Even if you're doing something for other people, you're doing some of that, at least in the most minor part, the tiniest fraction, to make yourself feel good as well. Because
0: surely we all have selfish motives in our love. We want to get something out of
1: it. So, yes, I think it's possible to do both. It's just the balance of those two things that you have to look out for.
0: And each party needs to know what the other's going into it with.
1: Lay this out for me up front so I can decide based on all the applicable evidence.
0: Just to let you know, I did not marry you for the now 7,000 movie titles (laughs) that we have.
1: I think we all know why you married me.
0: (laughs) I I think I might start giggling. Am I blushing?
1: A little bit. (laughs) Well, this movie was incredible. I don't know how I have missed it all these years, but thank you so much for showing it to me. As radiant as she is in Robin Hood and as much as I love her in the snake pit, I think I've never seen Olivia de Havilland better than this. Coldness is on the money. Icy is the adjective that I keep coming back to, and that should not be confused, I should say, with boring or inert. It is coldly, powerfully precise. But moving within that coldness is de Havilland's heart being taken on this roller coaster ride. If you come into this with any doubt as to the level that she's operating on, that doubt is completely dismantled by how many times you have felt yourself on the edge of your emotional seat watching her navigate this predicament.
0: Something just occurred to me. I don't want to end the episode without thinking about this. We didn't really talk about the sexual outlet, which of course was not mentioned during the period or in the film overtly, but. You use the word inert, and I think that that's wonderful, because essentially the ending is making her inert. She doesn't have a viable sexual outlet now. But maybe that's getting too postmodern?
1: No, I don't think so. But I would say, have you seen some of those uh, risque Victorian postcards that I've heard so much about?
0: That's true.
1: I would not completely write off those avenues for her. Especially now that she so understands herself and her situation this way. She seems more equipped at this point, even though it might be, quote-unquote, loveless, to go out and pursue those things like that that she might be interested in.
0: On her own terms, as we said. So then, what's your recommendation?
1: This time around, I want to recommend Hobson's Choice from 1954, and that's directed by David Lean, starring Charles Lawton, Brenda DeBanzi, John Mills, Daphne Anderson, and lantern favorite Prunella Scales.
0: I still haven't seen it.
1: It is so good. It's about the hard-drinking and tyrannical owner of a shoe shop, his three daughters anxious to get out from under his thumb, and the meek but skilled employee caught in the middle.
0: Seems like maybe a little bit of an echo of King Lear?
1: <laughs> a little bit, maybe. And Charles Lawton, of course, chose the scenery that way.
0: <laughs> yeah.
1: I think this also answers your question from earlier about that devil's bargain she's making, the choices that are available to her there are more permutations to this story than might immediately come to mind when facing something so severe as the heiress. I realize that class would probably make a difference in the behaviors of and the options available to a daughter of marriageable age, as they would say. It's also a comedy, so tonally it's different, but I do think it plays as a nice flip side to the heiress in terms of looking at similar themes in broad terms and gives us a daughter who is willing to go toe-to-toe with her father for what she wants. It can also be just as cruelly insightful, but it leavens that occasionally with sharp wit. And Charles Lawton, I think, is a more relatable and approachable paternal figure than Ralph Richardson, even though his character in this is also seriously flawed. It's definitely an apples and oranges choice, but if you want to feel a little better after the heiress crushes all your hopes and dreams, Hobson's choice is a nice gradual step back in the other direction... It's like a decompression chamber or an airlock to get back onto the ship of Happy and Satisfied. And what about you?
0: I'm going to bring us way down again. (laughs) Everything that I toyed with was a downer. I may have even suggested doing the uninvited for that specter of the dead mother, but we covered that way back in episode seven. I toyed around with Dodsworth and Jules et Jim but I ultimately chose something that has haunted me since I've watched it.
1: But you still stuck in those other two just then. I
0: did. <laughs> <laughs> so I chose Rambling Rose oh. from 1991. Have you seen it? Yes, I love it. I saw it in the theater. It was directed by Martha Coolidge with Laura Dern, Robert Duvall, Lucas Haas, and Diane Ladd. It's about a young woman who exudes sexuality, and this becomes a threat to those around her who seek to control her. So this was a film that I saw on my own, and as a teenager at the time, it very much stuck with me. I've got vivid sense memories of it, and I think the setting is really well captured here. Also a period piece. Laura Dern is mesmerizing. And I picked this because it's all about the choice that is basically taken away from her regarding her sexuality and her future, And that's at the center of the climax. I think few people have seen this film at this point, so I don't really want to go into a ton of detail that I might normally. So I know I'm being kind of vague and elliptical, but you want to see what happens.
1: Absolutely. This is definitely a film worth seeking out.
0: So once again, that's two great recommendations, Hobson's Choice and Rambling Rose.
1: And that brings us to the end of episode 117. If what we do here is valuable to you and you would like to support that, we would certainly love for you to check out our Patreon at patreon.com slash magiclantern. The $5 a month level gets you access to a big backlog of bonus episodes, and those come out on the Mondays alternating with regular episodes, so you never have to go a week without new Magic Lantern in your life. If you would just like to get in touch with us, you can reach us via email at magiclanternpodcast at gmail.com. We are on Facebook, Instagram, and YouTube. Just search for Magic Lantern Podcast on any of those platforms. Our podcast network, The 25th Frame, is home to a lot of great shows, so please stop by 25thframemedia.com to check out all of our cinema-loving friends and see what they're up to. In this month of November, we are highlighting one of our favorites, The Complete Podcast, and that's hosted by our friends Matt Gasteyer and Travis Trudell. And each season of that show makes its way through the complete filmography of the world's most renowned filmmakers.
0: We were both on different episodes of the Stanley Kubrick complete season.
1: That was a great season. They also, in their second season, devoted that to one of our absolute favorites, Elaine May. The current season is in the middle of a deep dive into Krzysztof Kieślowski. It truly is one of our favorite shows, putting on an episode of the complete is like picking up a conversation with old friends that love talking film, one of our favorite things to do. Matt and Travis have an easy and fun rapport, even while talking about some pretty heavy films sometimes, and their rotating roster of guests always brings something illuminating to that conversation, so we highly recommend. it. We are on Twitter, at lantern underscore cast, and I just wanted to take a second to say thanks to everyone who has shared the show or given us feedback since last time. Laura Cannon over at the Fatal Films podcast, the fine gentleman at Fuds on Film, Keisha Stokes, Chris Casey, Josh Hornbeck and the Criterion Channel Surfing podcast, John Laubinger over at Film Baby Film, and Stan Johnston. If you're sharing the show or talking about us, please make sure to tag us so we can say thanks. We are on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Stitcher Radio, Spotify, the 25th Frame, just about anywhere you get your podcast, you can find us. If you'd like to leave us a rating or review via any of those services, we would certainly appreciate that. And finally, you can find all of our episodes, including supplemental material, at the website magiclanternpodcast.com. And
0: thank you for listening to the Magic Lantern Podcast. 25th Frame, a listener-supported network celebrating film and culture worldwide.